Shabbat Shalom. We're live. New website, new everything, new me, new you. Galucha, chapter four. I'm excited about that. We had a break. I feel refreshed. Don't you feel refreshed? I feel totally refreshed. But before we delve into Galucha, Galatians, the dispersed of Yah, chapter four, I've got to acknowledge that uh, there are many of you that are tuning in to try and comprehend the book of the law and book of the covenant dichotomy. There truly are. And I want to put people at ease um, before we go into chapter 4, because I want to make this statement. There is no parts of Torah that have passed away in the sense of how the institutionalized church persists. You know, the law's done away with. No, there are no parts of Torah that are done away in the sense of how the institutionalized church would persist. But in fact, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18 does state thus, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. So the writer of the book of Hebrews understands, and this is what we need to understand as mature Torah believers. He understands that it's permissible, listen, that it's permissible to disannul the former book of the law commandments without abrogating Torah. He understands that. It's permissible to disannul the former book of the law commandments without abrogating Torah as a whole. Because both the book of the law and the book of the covenant are both Torah legal entities. And this is what we have to grasp. They are both Torah legal entities that are transferable within the legal scope of the law. Within the legal scope of the law. Hebrews 7.12. For the priesthood being transferred, there is made of necessity also a change in the Torah. You can't get more succinct than that. Very clear, very succinct. One of the most critical, critical aspects of following the Torah that is oft overlooked by most, not only is it that we should know the commandments of Yahuwah, but we should also heed the Malkizedic lessons and covenants from the lives of the patriarchs. And that is the common thread that you always see with Rav Shaliak Shaul's writings. Abraham, 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 Abraham. Always trying to connect us back through Zerah, seed, promise, covenant, and Abraham. It's a thread, and you have to thread the needle and connect it back, Ephesians 2.12, to the covenants of promise. And we have to be so careful today. And that's why I want to mention this before we get into Galatians chapter 4. We have to be so careful today who we associate with. We really do. We really do. 
Because many have selective Torah observance, void of the book of the covenant parameters that avoids the foundational ethical and moral imperatives of the Torah. There's no love. There's no ruach. There's no faith. They neglect the foundational ethical and moral imperatives of the Torah whilst saying they're Torah observant, missing the very foundation of what Torah is all about. And you wonder why so many in the institutionalized church aren't coming and following you? Because you're not leading. If you just look around and you look behind you and no one is following you, you're just taking a long walk by yourself. And that's what we've got. People taking walks by themselves and wondering why nobody from the church is coming out of her, my people. Because you're not loving, full of the Ruach and full of faith. Because the book of the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. And that's what Rav Sholiach said. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1, it says thus, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from an Eved, a slave, even though he is a master over them all, but is under guardians, tutors, and stewards of the house until the time has been that is set aside by his other. So Shaul uses here very clearly the word for emancipation. In the Greek, emancipatio, emancipatio. And he uses another word for adoption, the Greek word adoptio. He uses this kind of language because he's trying to portray what? The legal status in relation to the law than that of a slave. And we have to grasp this. You see, natural Israel, like the natural son before emancipation, could own nothing. Could own nothing. And the Romans were very familiar with this kind of legal speak. Because in Rome, it was the same thing. They could own nothing before. The son could own nothing before he was emancipated. He had no greater legal status in relation to the law than that of a slave, even though he were as a son. He, if he's not emancipated, he has no greater relation to the law than that of a slave. Just the same thing. It's only once the time set forth by the Father that the Son, just like Israel, finds itself declared emancipated. I have been found declared emancipated by my faith in Yahushua. My relationship to Torah has to be, it has to be distinctly different than an unregenerate Ashkenazi. It has to be. And if it's not, if I'm doing the Torah the same as an unregenerate Ashkenazi, we've got a problem. I'm a slave. I'm a slave. But I am not 
Because my relationship to Torah has a legal status change by the blood of Yahushua. And that's power. That's faith. And that is what leads people and draws people. Because it's real. It's alive. I'm not taking a walk. I'm leading. And you're leading by faith, by ruach, by power that transcends this world. And that's the Jerusalem above. This is powerful stuff. And people see it, and they smell it, and they taste it, and then they make the change within their life. That is the amazing thing, the revelation of the Malkizedek. Because it's only once we understand that emancipation, and that we are now adopted, and we are genuine heirs in relation to the Torah... The heir now can take hold of all of his father's possessions because he now has a different legal status in regard to Torah. That's the book of the covenant. That's the power of the Malkizedek book of the covenant. We are heirs to the covenants of promise, Ephesians chapter 2, just like Abraham. And that's what this is all about. You have to ask yourself the question, do you want to live like children? Nepios in the Greek. Do you want to live like children in your relationship to Torah? Just like the Ashkenazi unregenerate Jews? Or do you want to live like emancipated heirs? Because that's the book of the covenant. It's how you relate to Torah. You're not doing away with Torah, but how you relate to it is legally different because you have a different status. It's all Torah. It's all Torah. But Yahusha changes my legal status. And I know that because I'm a living testimony of that. You can't tell me that Yahusha has not changed my legal status. Because I have 25 years of history that I know. You can't steal that from me. Because he lives inside of me. And I know that my legal status changed the moment when I was 24 and I transferred over by faith. I had a legal change of status. Did I understand what my emancipation led me into? Torah? No. Because I had all this chatter telling me it was done away with, done away with, done away with. But now that I'm full of faith and maturity, I'm certainly not going to live as a child and follow an Ashkenazi interpretation of Torah because you're still a slave. That's what Paul in his maturity is communicating to those the dispersed of Yah, the Galutia, the Galatians. I have a legal change of status in my relationship to Torah and I am not going to remain blind to that change of status. There's just no way. The problem is people remain blind and they're going to relate to Torah in one of two ways. Those that remain blind. A, they're going to say, well, the Torah's done away with, right? And B, just the same as unregenerate Judaism, both have to understand they have got no better legal status than that of a household slave in relation to their legal status of Torah because they have no faith.
No faith. Look at verse 3. Even so, when we were children, we were in slavery under the elements of the olam hazer, under the elements of this world. Now, we all are familiar with this to the institutionalized church. Statements like verse 3, that they're just so definitive. They're so clear, aren't they? That there's no further investigation needed, is there? Very definitive. Let's do away with the law. No. But that's what you end up with. No further investigation needed in verse 3. But we must pause. We have to pause. Surely we must pause. Because the slavery under the elements of the world isn't speaking about keeping Torah. But it's speaking to the fact that Torah was always there to point to Yahushua. That's what Torah was for. It was always there to point to Yahushua. So both the Jews and those in the nations are all viewed equally as minors without proper legal status until they accept Messiah Yahushua and then they attain covenant status. Because if they don't, they're all still under the elements of the world, aren't they? Whether they're Roman or whether they're Jewish. They're still all under the elements of the world. Because without Yahushua's blood ratification, there was no genuine claim to being heirs of the promises of Abraham. Because apart from faith, even the physical descendants of Abraham were still minors. They were still children. They were still infants in the household of Yahuwah. Were they not? Were they not? You see, without Messiah... Earth, water, air, and fire, what are they? What are they without Messiah? They are simply just the basic elements of the world. Whether you're Jewish, Jewish or Gentile, they're the basic elements of the world. And they were looked at by both Jews and Gentiles, though differently, to guide them in elementary forms of religion. The Gentiles looked at the basic elements, earth, water, air, and fire, to guide them in elementary forms of religion. And the Hellenistic Jews, though differently, still looked at those basic forms, air, water, earth, and fire, to guide them in a Gnostic form of religion also. Because the nations, the nations, the Gentiles, they deified these basic elements as Demeter, Poisidon, Hera, and Hephaestus, their deities. And the Jews, though different, they believed that these four basic elements would guide them through the place of reason, is what they called it. And what was the place of reason to the Jew? That was the breastplate, the breastplate of the high priest. They called the place of reason, and they believed that that was guided by, through the breastplate, earth, water, air, and fire, the basic elements formed their priestly services within the Levitical hierarchy. This was plain Gnosticism. Though different, they still viewed these basic elements as the forms of their religion, whether it was Gentile or Jewish. 
Gnosticism, which is combining the mysticism of the Hellenistic world with the worship of Yahweh. And that's what was going on. So now I understand verse 3 because I've investigated it further than how we were taught in seminary, correct? Look at Galatians verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, Yahweh sent forth his son. Made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, what does it say in Matichahu, Matthew 11, verse 13? For all the prophets and the law were until Yochanan the Immerser. What does that mean? What was the purpose of the prophets? The purpose of the prophets was to come and admonish Israel as they had apostatized to return, make teshuvah and repent and come under the tutorage of the book of the law which they had strayed from. That was the purpose of the prophets, always to turn Israel back to the tutorage of the book of the law until the time of reformation when Messiah would come. When Messiah came, he was born as one under the law. He kept the book of the law perfectly. And the law was from when? What does it say? For all the prophets and the law were until John the Immerser came and he transferred his high priestly ministry over to Yahusha as the Zedek until John. So then Yahusha then could come and redeem us from the curses of the book of the law when he transferred through his death, burial, and resurrection the book of the law and Israel back into the covenants of promise. But did Yahusha keep the book of the law perfectly? Yes, he did. He was one who was born under the law because the law and the prophets were until John did the transference ceremony on Yahusha, enabling him to take its condemnation and then restore Israel to its right legal covenant status of Torah, book of the covenant Torah. This is powerful stuff. Luke chapter 16, verse 16. For the law and the prophets were until John, the immerser, did the transference ceremony with Yahushua. And we've covered this in the Zedek series, I believe, specifically the introduction to Zedek. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, Yahuwah sent forth his son, made of a woman, Born under the book of the law. Born under the law. Yahushua being born under the book of the law, he kept it perfectly and he taught others to keep it perfectly. Just like Moshe and the prophets had beforehand, he did so likewise. Yahushua came as a Jew who was raised and taught within the boundaries of the book of the law and he experienced firsthand the condemnation that that book of the law brought against sinners, did it not? It brought condemnation. For he, being without sin, took upon our sins. 
He had to have a proposal acceptance, blood ratification, and covenant confirming meal before there could be any transferring from the book of the law to the book of the covenant and a transferring of the priesthoods. And then, and then when, when? Then he could bring in a much more glorious covenant and the disannulling of the former book of the law. Hebrews 7.18. For there is verily, verily, I like that, a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness unprofitableness thereof. It's great language. 2 Corinthians 3.11, if that which is done away was glorious, why was the book of the law that was done away with glorious? Because without it, you're dead. I think that's pretty glorious that Yahweh accepted Moshe's immediation and he didn't commit genocide on Israel. That's pretty glorious. But could it give you life? Did it ever give you life or did it just sustain the measly, weak life that you had, you fornicating idolaters, right? See? Yes, confess up, you little wench, crying out loud. I mean, this time of year just gets me all irritated. How many questions did we have on the, on the way to congregation today? Papa, why, why are there trees on top of people's cars? Because they're foolish. Well, what are they doing? And Papa, what are the bulls? Well, you know, Moshe, we talk about seed sacks. Let me tell you about those bulls that they hang on the trees and what they really are about. And my kids are like, Yes, they're the seed sacks of the idols that they bow down and prostrate themselves. And my kids are like, wow, these people are crazy. I'm like, they are crazy. (laughs) This is the conversation. So yes, I get a little irritated. And if I hear one of those salvation bells chiming when I go to the mall again, I tell you. You have? Catfish. You're not supposed to confess that type of thing. This is a holy kadosh assembly. (laughs) Leave it to catfish. Yes, we all do come from the pits, don't we? (laughs) Hebrews 9.10, 2 Corinthians 3.11. Let's go back to that. If that which was done away with was glorious, now we have established why the book of the law was glorious, much more that which remains, the book of the covenant, is glorious. Now we can proceed to Hebrews 9.10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings, and the carnal ordinances, the book of the law, fleshly carnal, that was imposed. They never agreed to it. It was imposed upon them only until the time of Messiah, the time of Reformation, when he would come and restore the covenant of Israel back. You see, this is all about that golden calf breach. Israel was living in a condition of slavery. Since the golden calf breach, Israel had been living in a condition of slavery. Not that keeping Torah is slavery, heaven forbid, no. But in their relationship to Torah, they were as slaves because they had not been 
emancipated. Because only Yahusha can emancipate us. Is that not true? So it was their relationship to Torah, not the perversion that the institutionalized church would teach, that the Torah is slavery. No. Heaven forbid, no. It's our relationship to it because we were not emancipated. Because only Yahusha's transference through the Malkitzedic priesthood enables that emancipation. Yahuwah had intended so much more for Israel. And his intentions were made clear in Exodus chapter 19. All that he has said we shall do. He had so much more that he intended for Israel to make them a whole nation of priests, a Kadosh nation under the Malkitzedic priesthood. But what happened? That golden calf breach. But when Yahushua arrived, he brought forth the emancipation which restored Israel's relationship to Torah. That's what it did. Because now you and I are all covenant heirs as emancipated, rather than being kept under guard by a tutor, we can now live as genuine heirs. That's a difference. That is a big difference. Israel never, they never lived as heirs to the covenants of promise of Abraham after the golden calf. They were always subjected to the book of the law's condemnation. They were always subjected to the book of the law's penalties. Until the time of Reformation. Look what it says in Romia, Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law, speaking of the book of the law, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, the book of the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to Yahuwah. This is a reference to Jew and Gentile alike, is it not? Jew and Gentile alike. Now we go back to Galatians 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, Yahweh has sent forth the Ruach HaKodesh of his own son into your levenot, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Abba. So then you are no longer an Eved, a slave, but a son you see this adoption language? I mean, it's right throughout, isn't it? The emancipation language, you cannot deny it. But a son, and if a son, then you are an heir of Yahuwah through Moshiach Yahusha. Verse 8. Back then, when you knew not Yahuwah, you did service to those who by nature are not Yahuwah, are Elohim. But now, after you have known Yahuwah, or rather are known by Yahuwah, how do you return back to the weak and beggarly elementary matters to which you desire again to be in slavery? And again, this has been so hijacked, this verse, by theologians, the weak and beggarly elements. Oh, the Torah, the feasts and festivals and Sabbaths of Yahuwah are weak and beggarly elements. Heaven forbid, no. 
taking the context, the text out of context creates a pretext, an error begets error, and the next thing you know, you're strapping a Christmas tree to your car, driving down the bloody freeway. I mean, and this is, we've all been guilty. I mean, especially Catfish. He even admitted to working for the Salvation Army. Illuminati. Um, I mean, just outrageous. But we have to overcome, do we not? We have to overcome commentators' anti-Torah bias, especially with this verse. We have to overcome the commentators' anti-Torah bias because most commentators see the next verses as a polemic against the law of Moses. But it couldn't be further from the truth, as we will investigate and find out, because these next verses are not talking about the Sabbath. They're not talking about the Feast of Yahuwah. Heaven forbid, no. Shaul here uses the Greek word epistropho, which can mean to return to a point where one has already been to turn around and venture backwards. That's key. That's key. Because under Roman law, think about it, under Roman law, the Jews had received religito in the Latin here. In fact, it's been a long time. You used to have to do this at school. Religio Licita, religio licita was the Roman law that was in place at the time of this writing. Religio licita. And what did that mean? That meant that those Jews under the edict of religio licita had the right to congregate in the Roman Empire. They had the right to congregate and to carry on Jewish worship and collect money because of that edict which was given. This edict was only granted to recognize Jews. It was only granted to recognize Jews, and it protected them from punishment from the emperor for forsaking the imperial cult, which would have included what? offering sacrifices to the Roman gods and the emperor himself. But because of this edict, the Jews were allowed to circumnavigate the imperial cult. They no longer had to worship and offer sacrifices to the deities or the emperor, and they could actually collect money and congregate because of this edict. Now, Gentiles, on the other hand, Think about it. We have got people coming to faith in Yahushua from the nations. And what were they then classified as? Would they come under that edict? No, because they weren't recognized as Jews, were they? So there's this hole between a rock and a hard place that we have to understand with the historical context of what's going on. Because Gentiles who neglected to perform such veneration... They were punished unto pain unto death. If a Gentile refused to offer veneration to the emperor and to the imperial cult, they were punished. And the Galatians, they were stuck between a rock and a hard place because they were being tempted to return to the imperial cult rather than face pain of death. That was the temptation. Because they were not under this edict. Because they weren't recognized as full Jews under the Jewish synagogue system. 
because they were in, but they were believers in Yahusha, but they were former Gentiles. They hadn't gone into traditional Book of the Lord Judaism, so they still had to offer sacrifices. So when it came Christmas time, we know it wasn't Christmas, but we know it was the same deities. When it came that season, what did they have? Were they tempted to draw back to the weak and beggarly elements rather than face flogging and pain of death? You bet they were tempted to go back to where they had once come. This is the context of verse 3. But if you don't look at the historical context, the next thing you know, you're doing away with the law, the feasts, and the Sabbaths. Heaven forbid. I mean, this is elementary stuff. But, you know, I, I, I would have hoped that somebody would have explained this to me 15 years ago. Because if we do our due diligence, we can clearly see that the history tells us that this was, in fact, going on. The Gentiles were between a rock and a hard place. They were being tempted to return to the imperial cult rather than face the brutal punishment. Or the other temptation was that they were to go to the safe harbor of the synagogues by submitting to proselyte conversion. Well, which is it going to be? Are you going to become a proselyte, convert, and go into the safe harbor of the synagogues that are under the edict? Or are you going to go back into the weak and beggarly elements of the pagan festivals? Because if you stay in this middle ground, you are going to be persecuted for his name's sake. And isn't that our life? Isn't that the choices that we have today? There's nothing new under the sun. If you follow Yahusha, you will be persecuted for his name's sake. Because how many in our midst, how many in our midst have gone into the traditional Jewish synagogues, gone under proselyte conversion and denied Messiah? How many of our midst have bowed to the peer pressure of their families and gone back into the church system with the paganism and all the love trappings? Or do you stay out here and get persecuted? Yes, you do. You stand for the faith that was once delivered for the saints, no matter how hard it is. And guess what? December time in the Roman calendaral system, you're going to get a lot of pressure from everyone. Everywhere. Everywhere. You go grocery shopping and you're like, oh my goodness, really? I just want to stay home. I do not want to go out in the month of December. It's everywhere. In my business, it's not there. And people, well, how come you're not playing Christmas music? Because it's my business. <laughs> I do whatever I want. And if there's any decorating going on, it's going to be a massive seven-branch menorah. And that's it. And anything else is getting taken down and thrown in the trash, heads up. That's it. I have to say that every year. Because otherwise, what happens? People start sneaking in their trash, their pagan trappings trash. It's everywhere. And then my staff comes to me and says, well, I know that you don't celebrate Christmas, but are we going to have like um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, are we going to have like a, uh, um, a go out for a party or dinner? And I'm like, well, you just said, you know that I don't celebrate. No. <laughs> No, we're not. You just said, you know that you don't sell. Did you hear what you just said? It's amazing to me. No, we're not. We're not going anywhere. We're going to go to work. 
crying out loud. We're going to work on the 20th. No, actually, I'm going skiing because that is my annual get out of Dodge. You know, when every week I go up on the mountain and I look for Father Christmas and I plan on taking him out on the slopes. Totally. It's Get Santa Day. What were we talking about before I went off on a tangent? We were talking about the pressure that these poor Galatians were under between going back to the imperial cult, staying in the middle ground facing death and punishment, or compromising and going under proselyte conversion and finding safe harbor in the synagogues, all because of the edict religio licita, the right to congregate, to carry on Jewish worship and collect money. And they were not under that. They found themselves between a rock and a hard place. So they were getting, again, entangled up in the paganism from which they had, in fact, been delivered. That's what these verses are talking about. The imperial cult, with its own calendar, packed with days, months, seasons, and years, dedicated to the pantheon, that we are still finding that we are battling today, 2,000 years later, battling it everywhere. I mean, you would not believe it. I, I mean, if the Galatians could see us, 2,000 years later, man's gone to the moon. <laughs> Right, Man apparently took some photographs on a soundstage in Hollywood with Stanley Kubrick. And anyway, and, and we're still struggling with all of this stuff of calendars and days and paganism. And we see it even today in the Messianic movement, the Hebrew Roots movement. People waking up to the paganism and all of these non-biblical traditions of Christmas and Easter, Easter. And they become what? Virulently anti-Christian, anti-pagan, anti-syncretism. But then they start to return back to pagan elements like Purim and Hanukkah. It's like you've just come out of Christmas and Easter. Why on earth then would you return back to pagan elements that have come out of Babylon? Are we going with the symbol of the faith, a seven-branch menorah, or are we going to slide back into the weak and beggarly elements and now construct a Hanukkah? Is it the seven feasts of Yahuwah, or is it the seven feasts of Yahuwah plus the two Babylonian love festivals of Purim and Hanukkah, and now we've gone back, and you're being totally anti-Christian and hating on those doing Christmas, and you trip over your own hypocrisy and double standards. It's Yahuwah, 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 or it's paganism, paganism, paganism. Syncretism stinks. Whether it's Jewish syncretism, Hanukkah and Purim, or whether it's Romish syncretism, Christmas and Easter. It doesn't belong in our faith. We've got a seven-branch menorah. Let's stick to the faith that was once delivered to the saints. You see, it happens in the Messianic movement. It's outrageous to me. And, and then you start talking about the truth about Hanukkah and Purim, and people hate on you because you're like, now you're messing with their holidays again. Yeah. Right? You go, boy, you miss my bloody holidays. 
Well, yes, we need to. We need to. The Galatians were returning to pagan astrological, that's a big word for me today, mythology. They were even getting caught back up into the practice of augury. Now, augury was, they'd look, oh, look, look at those birds. Oh, my goodness. And then they'd see the, that was what they would do. They'd get caught up into the practice of augury where they'd look at the flight patterns of birds and then they could tell the future. Yeah. They do that back in England. Oh, there's a magpie. You know what? My auntie used to do that. There were magpies all around my mum's house. Do you remember that? Bloody magpies. Man, and I never was allowed an air rifle. I mean, oh, there wouldn't have been any magpies if I had known about that stuff. But anyway, oh, yeah, my auntie would come over for Christmas. And, oh, there's two magpies. Do you know what that means? And we'd be like, oh, what does it mean? All of this mumbo-jumbo, bloody let's read your tea leaves nonsense. Yeah, seriously. Paganism. Everywhere. Everywhere. Verse 10. You Shoma, you guard your own days and moons and times and years. I am concerned about you, lest I have labored among you for nothing. It's an admonition. Now, I've got to get into the NIV here. Look at verse 11 on the NIV. This is the sloppiest translation that isn't even historically valid. Verse 11, NIV. Due to the return to Pharisaic legalism. Yeah. Due to the return to Pharisaic legalism. Where do you even get this from? It's not even historically valid. But you see how they primed you to this anti-Torah basis. They prime you. This is in the NIV. But we find that the Galatians were actually drifting into superstition, connected to their own cultures, special years, days, and seasons, which was akin to astrology, really. It was akin to astrology, bringing them into bondage to evil spirits. It even had a perverted Jewish context. And Shaul had already, he'd already had troubles with this. He's on his way to Galatia, and he runs in. Who does he run into? That bloody witch man. Acts chapter 13, verse 6. What would you call a witch man? You'd call him a warlock or a wizard, would you not? Well, he did. Look at the wizard. Not the wizard of Oz, but he'd already run into him in Paphos when he encountered the false Jewish prophet Bar Yeshua. And likely he is actually warning the Galatians because he's just had a run-in with this geezer. Acts 13, 6. And when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain wizard, a false prophet, a Yahudi, whose name was Bar Yeshua, who was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a wise man who called for Barnava and Shaul and desired to hear the word of Elohim. But Elimas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, he withstood them, seeing to turn away the deputy from the Emunah, the faith. Then Shaul, who was also called Paul, that was his Roman name, it looked like he had all these different names, but it was his Roman name, Shaul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, set his eyes on him, and he said, Oh, you, full of all deceit and all mischief, you child of the devil. Wouldn't you? I just want to say that to some state workers. Don't you want to? I want to say that. Anyway, focus. 
You child of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to pervert the right halachot of the master Yahuwah? And now see, the hand of the master Yahuwah is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. Not seeing the sun for a season. Why a season, you might wonder? Why a season? Because he was astral gazing. He was astral gazing, and that was connected to the astrological signs and seasons because this bloke was a magos, a magi. He was an enchanter, a sorcerer, a magician connected to the ancient Babylon Jewish rites of the occult. Just like the Talmud and the Zohar and Hanukkah and Purim today. Just the same. It creeps into the Hebrew roots, and we have got to call it out and stop it. Get right, get righteous, or get the right hell out of here. Yeah. Really. To try and connect, though, verse 10, to the Sabbaths, the feasts, and the festivals of Yahuwah, it does demonstrate nothing other than, to me, sloppy and disingenuous approach to the text. And the same with history. And it discredits both pastors and commentators to boot because they're not doing their due diligence. Because you can dig into this stuff and you can see the whole context of this, of what was going on in Galatia. It's got nothing to do. The weak and beggarly elements have nothing to do with Yahuwah's feasts, festivals, and Sabbaths. So we can now confidently move on and lovingly admonish people to what? Get right with Yahuwah and get out of the paganism, whether it's Jewish paganism or Romish paganism. It's all abounds us. It's all around us. And it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts. It truly does. And I think you can see that frustration. Israelite brothers, put yourself in my place. Just as once I put myself in your place, you have not offended me at all. You know how through weaknesses of the flesh, verse 13, I proclaim the Bessorah, the gospel to you before. And now look at verse 14. And in my trial, that was in my flesh, you did not despise and you did not reject me. But you received me as a malach, a messenger of Yahuwah, even as Mashiach Yahusha. Where then are the brachot, the brachot and the rachamin you had towards me? For I bear you record that if it had even been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes had you given them to me. See, Rav Shaul right here, he tells us that he was stoned, just like the master Yahushua was stoned. But he survived. To tell the tale. Look at Acts, Maaseh Shlechim, chapter 14, verse 19. And there came certain unbelieving Yahudim from Antioch, Iconium, who persuaded the people to, cut, to turn against the Shlechim, the apostles. And having stoned Shaul, they drew him out of the city, thinking he was a dead man. Galatians 6.17. From now on, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the master Yahusha. He wasn't crucified. So what are the marks of the master Yahusha that he bears in his body? 
Well, if you go back to the Torah, what would have happened for somebody who was accused of blasphemy like the master Yahusha, he would have been taken outside of the city and he would have been stoned. Then he was crucified and that's why he died so quickly. Because he was almost stoned to death and then nailed to the tree. The master Yahusha received the marks in his body, and Rav Shaliakshaul has the marks that the master had on his body, not crucifixion, but stoning. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. For the unbelieving Yahudim, five times I received 39 stripes. Now, we were only getting six at boarding school. I mean, it was rough, though. There were three masters, and this is me now venting because of trauma, but there were three masters, and it depended on the master you would go to. One master had a five-foot bamboo cane with a lead tip, and he was the cricket captain. He was the worst, because what he was, you were only allowed to give him six. So we'd have to line up every Monday for our homework. And if you got a green C, which I obviously got quite a lot, you could get a red A, a blue B, or a green C. Green C, automatically six stripes. And if you went to that master, the cricket captain, the way he did it, he would come down on you. You'd have to get over the, the bench, you know. I was in the canoe club, so I tried it with a wetsuit under my school uniform. But, you know, the response was, <laughs> bring it on. So they got pretty smart that so we were wearing a wetsuit under the school uniform. But he would give you one, and then he would wait. Wait for the pain to sink in, and then another. And it would just drag on forever. Then the other master, he just had a regular bamboo cane. It was still about five foot, but no lead tip on the end. And you'd just get your six strokes, you know. It was still bad. But then we had this other guy, and he had another one, and he had frayed it on the ends. So they all, they were, these are the kinky masters that you get, you know? They were well into it. Well into it. And we were terrified as kids, you know? Kept us in line. But, you know, this is what we're talking about. No, it's not. This is not at all what the Bible's <laughs> talking about. This is what I'm talking about, because I'm trying to get over my childhood here in front of you all. Sorry. All right. Crying out loud. I don't know what's happened to me. 2 Corinthians 11.24. For the unbelieving Yahudim, five times I received 39 stripes. And I went off on a tangent that we were only allowed to receive six. But now I'm back to where I should have been in the first place. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Crikey. I mean, that was rough, wasn't it? Corporal punishment. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep. That is the testimony of a servant of Yahusha. But what marks? We know that he wasn't hung on a tree. So the marks that Rav Shaliak Shaul spoke of were nothing other than the stoning that he had received. And Galatians 4.15, For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Because the Galatians, they loved Shaul so much that they were even willing to give them his, their eyes. Because Rab Shaul, he had received extensive damage to his eyes that caused him great difficulty to be able to see. He was unable to see properly. 
after this stoning. And it's very sad because the object of stoning, of course, was usually the head. You even see that today. They bury you in the sand up to your know, neck. That's what they did. The object of stoning was the head. And we can look, of course, at the words of Mark, chapter 12, verse 4, and they really do echo this. Again, he sent them another servant, and at, and at him they threw stones, wounding him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. So Shaul bore the marks of Yahushua. He bore the stripes. Now, the word here for stripes is kabaro, kabaro, which means blows that cut in deeply. Blows that cut in deeply. How would they do that? From sharp pieces of flint or stone that would cut in, and that would, of course, immediately cause a wheel marking on the skin. What cuts in is each stone lands, it would cut in, cut into the flesh, and then blood would start to spurt out. And this is why we have Shaul's thorn in the flesh, because he's been somewhat blinded. Look at verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. You missed my whole boarding school rant. I heard it out there. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Do you know what? I don't know how many years. I mean, the first, what? Finally, my wife said to me, one time we went back to England. She's like, we have got to go back. I'm like, we're not going back. She's like, no, no. You, I used to have nightmares, wake up drenched, didn't I? Almost like all the time, weekly. So she made me go back, I don't know how many years ago. It was the craziest experience, was it not? And I, I, I don't have many nightmares at all now. Maybe like once a year. I have my annual, biannual one, you know, that's about it. But, it. but that really did bring a lot of healing. It was amazing. Yeah, I met them. I met the, I met the masters. They're like, oh, yeah, nice to meet you. I'm like, <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. It was so weird, wasn't it? Verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? How many feel that way? You start telling people the truth, and all of a sudden they're like, I'm going to see you, bloody. I'm not going out to dinner with you again. <laughs> Tamara went out for breakfast with a girlfriend when she first came into this. First time. Gets into Torah, she's super excited. We're no longer doing all of this stuff. She goes out to breakfast. And the girl orders the breakfast, and Tamara's like, You know, that's an abomination. It's an abomination. Pork. It's an abomination. You're cut off from the assembly of Israel. <laughs> never went out for breakfast with her again. Never called her again. That's what happens. She's not going to be my friend. She won't let me eat piggies in blankets. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Isn't it amazing how Yahweh actually changes your senses? It really does. He changes your sense. This is the power of Yahuwah. The word penetrates your heart, and then from the heart, it changes your thinking, and then your thinking actually changes your senses. I grew up in England. Sausages for breakfast with mushy peas. It's just the way it goes. But then the smell now, 
of bacon, that actually makes me sick. How did that happen? Because the word is alive, penetrated my heart, which then affected a change in my mind, which then changed my senses. Yahweh can transform your life in all areas. If he can do that with your senses, he can do that with your sexuality. He can do that with it all. Drugs, alcohol, sex, everything, all of those senses. If the word enters your heart and then it penetrates your mind, then whatever it is that's got you in bondage, boom, delivered, delivered. That is powerful. My whole life in all areas, all of those areas I've mentioned. Changed. Senses changed. You too. I know, because you've shared a few things with me. Powerful stuff. Verse 18. But it is good to always desire pleasant things, and not only when I am present with you, my little children of whom I am again in birth pains, until Mashiach be formed in you again. I desire to be present with you now and to change my tone, but now I stand in doubt of you. Now, of course, in verse 21, we're going to get to the what? The infamous Sarah and Hagar allegory. Are you ready for this? Cool, my goodness. Talk about troubles in times of history. Yes, this is an allegory. This is an allegory, but no, you cannot ignore the literary language which identifies the two covenants. You can't. Because the common Christian and even messianic interpretation of the allegory is faith precedes Torah. And that's represented by Isaac, the son of the free woman. Salvation precedes Torah observance. Yes, we know that. But that is not what this is about. That is such an elementary interpretation. And we all know you're not saved by doing Torah. It's, it's okay. Don't worry. We know we're not saved by doing Torah. Let's not rip this allegory about two covenants out of context because you're all afraid that we're doing Torah to get saved. That's not what this is about. Yet the Jews of the day were trying to place the Torah before faith. That's the common interpretation, which of course is Ishmael, right? Torah before faith, the son of the slave woman Hagar. Torah primacy without faith. So this is really a dichotomy between Torah primacy without faith or faith and then Torah. Faith primacy. That's the dichotomy that's set up and established for us. But then the institutionalized church has to take it a step further by setting up a false construct of a New Testament versus an Old Testament, even though the text doesn't support such interpretations. Well, the two covenants is the New Testament and the Old Testament. Have you ever heard that? Well, that's a false construct. The text doesn't allow that at all. Now, whilst these are both common interpretations, they both are equally low-minded. And they leave the key literary language unaddressed. 
And that's what we need to address. We need to address the key literary language. Because what they've done, these interpretation, is they fob it off with a knee-jerk response of faith primacy, not works primacy. And they just fob it off. But we need to know what's going on here. And we know that faith precedes Torah observance. But that is not even remotely what this allegory is addressing. It's not. And though this is a common interpretation, commentators will blindly, and this encourages me, they will blindly use Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, the book of the covenant, to support their thesis without even seeing the book of the covenant in the text. But they go to Exodus 19.5 to support their thesis. But they don't even see Book of the Covenant and read it in the text. Then they'll even go on to Exodus chapter 24 verse 12, the law, to neatly tie up that verse, the one from Mount Sinai. But they never see the Book of the Covenant versus the added Book of the Law verses that they just blindly stumbled upon. Now, this encourages me because they are actually going to the right texts, but they're just blind to see Book of the Covenant right there within the text of Exodus 19.5, which is one of the covenants, which then would lead you to what the other covenant is, the law verse. So now with that said and done, let's look at the allegory chapter 4 verse 21. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law. Well, this would be talking about the book of the law. Do you not listen to the Torah? Do you not listen to the whole of the Torah in context of what it's teaching you? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the female Eved slave and the other by the free woman. But he who was from the female Ebed slave was born after the flesh, carnal. But he from the free woman was of promise, faith. So now we've got a division. And this is the book of the law, carnal, not of faith. Book of the covenant, faith, two covenants which things are allegories, for these are the two covenants. The one from Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, that brings forth slavery, which is Hagar. Exodus 24, verse 12, come up here and receive the law. After the blood ratification of Exodus 24, verse 8, you cannot add to an already blood-ratified covenant. That is the law that was the book of the law that was imposed and brings forth slavery. Does that make sense? Brings forth slavery. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the Jerusalem that now exists and is in slavery with her children. Now, Paul right here, he states that this allegory is about two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, the added book of the law, Exodus 24, 12. And it is fleshly, and it brings you into bondage, which was the present state of Jerusalem of his time. 
That's what they were all into, the bondage of the book of the law because they hadn't received the reformation that had come by Yahusha. Now we look at verse 26. But the Yerushalayim, the Jerusalem that is above, is free, which is the Ema, the mother of us all. The book of the covenant is free because it's heavenly Malkitzedek. Now, you cross-reference this with Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Hebrews, which is all about speaking about the fruition of the Malkitzedic covenants of promise. Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living Elohim, the heavenly Jerusalem. There it is right there. To an innumerable company of angels to the gathering and called out assembly of the firstborn. Where and when were Israel a gathered assembly and called out as the firstborn? Where did that happen? Only place that happened was Exodus 19, 5 through 24, 8. They were called out the, and called the assembly of the firstborn. They were a chosen nation of royal priesthood. This is the book of the covenant text. This supports that interpretation right there. And if you need more, you can go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, and read that through verse 22, and it reaffirms these are the covenants of promise which the Messiah has established through his death, burial, and resurrection. We've got a book of the law, book of the covenant dichotomy, and this is what the allegory is between these two covenants. The book of the law is the Hagar. It corresponds to the Jerusalem of Paul's day because they were still on the cusp of the law. They were at that transition point. They were in bondage under the tutor, the schoolmaster, and Messiah Yahusha had transformed the priesthood by his resurrection, bringing them into the book of the covenant, which is the mother of us all from the Jerusalem above, yeah. Hebrews 12, verse 22, returning you back to Exodus 19, 5, the book of the covenant's promises of a proposal, an acceptance, a blood ratification, and a covenant-confirming meal, verse 8 of chapter 24 of Exodus. This, of course, is the free woman. Two covenants, what an allegory that we have. Verse 27, for it is written, Rejoice, you barren that did not bear or break forth, and shout for simcha, joy, that you did not have labor. For the barren and the deserted one has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, Israelite brothers, are like Yitzhak, Isaac was. We are the children of promise, because we are now attached, Ephesians 2.12, to the covenants of promise from which we were strangers, but we've now been brought back in through the blood of Messiah. Verse 29, But as it was then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Ruach HaKodesh. Even so, it is now. And of course, the corrupt Hasmonean temple system, they were doing what? They were flaunting none other than the book of the law because they were persecuting the Eliezer Zadokite followers of the Mashiach Yahusha, the book of the covenant adherents. And this is what we see today 
in the Messianic movement. People are persecuted because you start following the Malkitzedic and the Book of the Covenant, and you start to question and go, hang on a minute, Ephesians 2.12, this is relevant. This is relevant for our faith today in how we attest and affirm Torah. So now look at the instruction of verse 30. Nevertheless, what does the katuv, the scriptures, tell us to do? Cast out the female Ebed and her son. Cast her out. For the son of the female slave shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. You have to make a choice. You have to make a choice in the dichotomy. For those following the book of the law, they will never be heirs with Yeshua, the Son of Heaven. Never. Never will be heirs. So then, Israelite brothers, we are not children of the female slave, book of the law, but we are of the free woman, the book of the covenant. This is how we relate to Torah his Sabbaths, his feasts, his festivals, and his dietary requirements. We do the Torah, but we relate to it as an emancipated, free son. We are not slaves under the tutor, the schoolmaster. We have been redeemed from the curse of the book of the law. Galatians is powerful. And this summation of chapter 4, to me, just brings it all home. Questions, comments, anybody at all in the back there? What a blessing. So good to get back into the Word. Sorry, I did take a couple of little rabbi trails there, revisiting my childhood. Crying out loud, that's a scary place to go, let me tell you. Nothing. I believe we have an own egg. We have some noshing and some schmoozing that's going to be going on. So fabulous. We do have big changes on the website. So please visit us at TorahToTheTribes.com and um, look and investigate the new teachings, the new construction there. And we'll look forward to getting into the Word next week. And now we'll look...